welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. Amidst the chaos, grief, compassion, and uncertainty we're living through right now, I think it's important to focus on what brings us together. By understanding our place in the world, we can help create a context for moving forward. This month, Earth Day turns 50, and I talk with an extraordinary person who exemplifies the energy, drive, humanity, and spirit of this day in 1970 when the nation gave birth to the modern, people-driven environmental movement. Dr. Arlene Bloom is a biophysical chemist, an author, a mountaineer, and executive director of the Green Science Policy Institute. The Institute's scientific research and policy work with government and business has contributed to preventing the use of harmful chemicals, including flame retardants and fluorinated chemicals like PFASs, in children's sleepwear, furniture, electronics, and other products worldwide. Arlene Bloom received her PhD from UC Berkeley and has taught at Stanford University and Wellesley College. But that's only a fraction of Arlene's story. Arlene led the first American and all-woman ascent of Annapurna One, considered one of the world's most dangerous and difficult mountains. She co-led the first women's team to climb Denali, completed the Great Himalayan Traverse across the mountain ranges of Bhutan, Nepal, and India, and hiked the length of the European Alps with her baby daughter on her back. She's the author of Annapurna, A Woman's Place, which was named one of the top 100 best adventure books of all time by National Geographic. She also wrote the highly acclaimed book, Breaking Trail, A Climbing Life. In 2018, Bloom was inducted into the California Hall of Fame. She was chosen by The Guardian as one of the world's 100 most inspiring women. Dr. Bloom is a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. And if that wasn't enough, Arlene was elected to the Hall of Mountaineering Excellence. Where are we sitting right now, Arlene? We're sitting in Tilden Park on a trail called Sea View with a wonderful view of the bay, wildflowers, green hills, gorgeous California. And why are there so many people on the trail today? Well, it turns out that everyone has been ordered to stay home or go outdoors, and everything's closed. So there are a lot more people outdoors than usual, which is a good thing. And... You do a walk every single day. Tell us about that routine and and how you got into it. Well, I do pretty intense work, and I work really hard because I have so many opportunities. And I've discovered that if every day I take a walk with friends or colleagues or sometimes even the chemical industry executives with whom I do not see eye to eye, um, it's extremely good for my physical health, my mental health, and my work. You have an incredible history of climbing, of mountaineering. Have you always had a passion for climbing and mountaineering? How did that start? I was raised by incredibly cautious and conservative Orthodox Jewish grandparents in Chicago and was not allowed to do anything. (laughs) And I pushed and pushed and pushed to just be able to take swimming lessons. And so I guess I started early 
with coming up with things I really wanted to do and then pushing to be able to do them. When I was a grad student at Berkeley, I heard about an expedition to Denali, Mount McKinley, the highest mountain in North America. And I'd been climbing a lot with my friends from Reed College and had climbed higher than Denali in Peru and applied to go on the trip and was told that women could go as far as base camp to help with the cooking. And when I called to say, well, I've climbed higher than Denali, they said, yeah, you were the only woman. You probably didn't do your share. You know, women really can't climb high mountains. I thought, I wonder if a team of all women could climb high mountains. And I found five other women, and we went and climbed Denali ourselves, all women. We're the first all-women's team. And indeed, not only did we climb it, but our leader had altitude sickness and became unconscious just below the summit. And at that point, I was 25. I was the deputy leader because I'd organized it. And suddenly, I was in charge of our Denali expedition with an unconscious person at 20,000 feet and a big Arctic storm coming in. And um, we actually made a stretcher, dragged her down the mountain, and it was really empowering to me. I mean, I'd had a lot of negative messages in my childhood about what I could and couldn't do, and I thought, wow, we got Grace down from Denali alive. We can do anything we dream up. So that was really inspiring for me to realize that we can all do harder things than we believe possible when we have to. And then you just kept going, though. That wasn't the end of your mountaineering. No, I loved being in the mountains. I love being outdoors. I love being here. I do seem to like challenges. <laughs> I was on a 1976 expedition that climbed Everest. We were the second American expedition in those days. Hard to believe we had the whole mountain to ourselves. And, and I climbed to nearly 25,000 feet. And on the way back, I thought at that point, all the world's highest mountains, over 8,000 meters, that's kind of a magic height. Um, they all had been climbed by men, but no woman had ever climbed 8,000 meters, and people were saying maybe women couldn't. And I thought, well, we climbed Denali. I got to 24 on Everest. Let's give women a chance. So on my way back from Everest, I applied for a permit for Annapurna 1. And it was the first 8,000-meter peak ever climbed. It has the highest fatality rate, and it's now considered the hardest to climb. And we did not know that, fortunately. <laughs> And so um, in 1978, I did organize uh, an all-women's expedition, and we were successful. We were the first women, and indeed the first Americans, to climb Annapurna. That reinforced my belief that we can all do seemingly impossible things, and I'd say now is a good time for all of us to be doing seemingly impossible things, because it's, it's tough right now. Your experience shows me, and, and the tough things that I've done in my life, is that you can move past them, that they're not insurmountable. And even if they are, you know, to continue moving forward with, with those challenges, I've never been above 8,000 meters. What, what is it like? I mean, the, the physicality of losing that oxygen, do you get addicted to that? It feels like a very rarefied club of people that understand and know something that the rest of us don't. Well... First of all, it's the most beautiful place ever, being above Timberline with the clouds on your feet, the extreme beauty and peace, and so it is so beautiful. But, you know, being out here in Tilden Park is so beautiful, too. You don't have to be on top of Annapurna. And there's a huge amount of focus. You have a goal, and you get a great team, and everybody shares a goal, but I'm always kind of looking for family, and a climbing expedition is like a family. 
but perhaps with better family dynamics than some families have. Um, so you have a, a family of people all focused on a goal and uh, you're in a beautiful place using every bit of your physical energy but your mental energy problem solving so it's it's super focused ever since I became a mom I didn't want to risk my life because I don't know if you know this but the chances of dying are about one in ten for climbing those mountains so it's seriously dangerous so for me as a mom I don't want to risk my life on the other hand what I'm doing now which is reducing harmful chemicals that are in our bodies and our products and our planet so it's got a, a very similar similar feeling of, of getting a great team, a family of people who share a common goal and then, you know, persevering through avalanches and storms and yetis and what have you. So talking of teams, what do you kind of see your role in that climbing team and you're climbing these these incredibly difficult mountains? How did that family get built? Well, there weren't so many women climbers in those days, so we really reached out every way we could to meet women climbers. And then there was a small core of us here in the Bay Area, so we would do practice trips in the Sierras to see how the possible candidates got along with our team because we felt there's, there's times when people climb mountains and come back and never speak to each other. But we, we did stay friends. We have retreats and, indeed, reunions. We feel like we're back on the glacier when we're together. It's great. And did you kind of pursue common visions afterwards? Well, I always have a great sense of curiosity and want to see everything. And I've wanted to see the whole Himalayas. And at that point, I met a guy named Hugh Swift, who had just finished writing a trekker's guide to the whole Himalayas. And he said he knew how to put trails together. And I had some connections for my expeditions. We had to get permission from Indira Gandhi, as it turned out, to walk across India. We had to get permission from the king of Bhutan to walk across Bhutan. Nobody had ever done that before. And so I said, I'll do the politics if you find the way. We didn't have much money, but we organized for a few trekking groups to come and meet us and bring us supplies along the way. And there were really no maps. There were these really old army maps that were really inaccurate, but we kind of had those, and we'd go to a village, and we'd say we're trying to go there, and they'd tell us where to go. So it was was a huge adventure. We actually walked all the way across Bhutan and Sikkim and Nepal and India. And then Hugh went on and walked across Pakistan, and I thought I had to be back at work, which was one of my life's greater mistakes, because I'm sure I will not walk across Pakistan anymore. Did you eat with local communities? I mean, there's a lot of settlements along, along those trails. Well, first of all, almost everywhere we were, they had never seen Westerners before. So we had incredible hospitality. We were treated like visitors from the gods. And in fact, when people would say, what are you doing here? You know, these white people walking in the mountains like with all this gear it was very peculiar we started to say we're pilgrims (laughs) and they they would take us in and they would feed us and uh, just wonderful hospitality it was the best year of my life for sure for people that are thinking about their careers and and life going forward like how did you find the strength to take a year off and I mean, especially in those days, it was not usual for people just to take time off and spend 10 months hiking. Like, how do you advise people now to think about those kind of expeditions and journeys? 
Well, I really recommend when they finish school or grad school or postdocs or whatever they do that they really do what they dream of before they start a job. You know, it's it's a good time. And then later on, when you have children and a job, it, it's really much harder. After I finished my PhD, I did a 15-month endless winter of mountain climbing all over the world. So I kind of got the idea. And when I was applying for jobs, people would note that gap in my resume, but they hired me anyway. So I, I think if you know you really want to do something, you can. Much more than people realize that you don't have to stay in that pattern. And and I know we did our round-the-world trip. We wrote an article a month for $100 each and somehow lived on that. My advice to people is to really try to slow down and take the time to think about what you really care about and what you really want to do. And then do it when you're young, when you, when you can take those breaks. And a lot of parents worry if their child takes a year off between high school and college, they won't want to go to college, but then they're not ready to go to college. They should go when they're ready. You have all this life that's already happened, and then you're doing a PhD at the same time. So I'm a biophysical chemist, and I actually, the process chemistry to me is very similar to the process of mountain climbing. When I come into a new field, I try to read everything, not be prejudiced, and think about solutions and goals. And um, I was able to do that and think about new ways of doing things that people hadn't done before and was able to even start new fields of science a few times. So I, I feel very fortunate. So once you start to realize that you can dream up things that seem impossible and then get other people who think it's possible and then make it happen, it's very empowering once you really believe that. And it's taken me a long time. You know, even, even now, after all these years, I come up with some crazy idea and I go, this is a crazy idea. And then I go, wait a second, don't reject it right away. Think about it. And I, I give more credence to my ideas because they have worked in the past. And I like to encourage people, you know, to really take the time. And that's, I think, what being out in the wilderness, taking long walks like I've done, like you've done, gives you the time to really think about what you care about, what you want to have happen, and then figure out how. Because it does feel like there's so much societal pressure to conform and that crazy ideas are often, unless they're leading to billion-dollar you know, tech innovations that dismissed as that person's really out there as a thinker. Um, and somehow the more conservative the thinking is, the more those people are promoted. And yet you've taken this different path that's based on curiosity and success. How do you build that voice in your head that says, Arlene, I should just keep going with this crazy idea? Yeah. So I guess people need to think about times when they were successful and really remind themselves of when they had an idea and it was successful. I took 26 years off from science. So in 1980 um, was not a good year for doing science and policy in America. And that's when I walked across the Himalayas. And I actually didn't go back to science until 2006. So I had this little 26-year gap <laughs> when I raised my daughter and um, did leadership training in Silicon Valley. And we, a lot of it was about um, finding a vision of the future you wanted to. We'd listen to Martin Luther King's dream speech, very inspirational. We haven't achieved it yet, but it changed the world. And we'd encourage people to come up with their own dream of what they really wanted to do. I have a dream today. One day right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. One of the things that 
modern society prevents us from doing is getting lost. When you were doing the Trans-Himalaya Walk, now it's nearly impossible to get lost. Like, And I, I love the fact that you have a poor sense of direction, which means you must get lost quite a lot. So tell us like, what it feels like to be lost. <laughs> well, not only do I get lost a lot, I'm an acute optimist. You know, Himalayan mountain climbers have to be an acute optimist. I do remember a night where I was going to be meeting a bunch of hikers at a high Sierra cabin on one side of the Tuolumne River, and somehow I was on the wrong side, and I was sure there'd be a bridge, <laughs> but there wasn't. <laughs> so I walked all the way back and caught up with them at dawn. <laughs> so when you're lost, it's actually good. That I always try to think of that when, it's, when I'm lost. I do not keep going forward thinking there'll be a bridge. I turn around and go back to the last place where I was knew where I was, <laughs> because then I can find my way. If I can't find my way to where I was, then I'm in trouble. <laughs> I love that. That's fantastic advice for life in general. So before you took the sabbatical and your daughter was born, what was the emphasis of your science, scientific inquiry? So when I came to grad school at UC Berkeley, I was given a project to try to figure out the structure of transfer RNA, which is an important small biological molecule. Um, and it has like 80 bases, and a few transfer RNAs had been sequenced. So I went and got four colored strings of hippie beads on Telegraph Avenue in four colors, and I strung all the sequences on wire, and then I kind of folded them around so the right ones paired with the right ones, and I discovered for all the known sequences you got a cloverleaf shape. And a lot of people thought that was remarkable, and should be published. But my advisor wanted me to do experiments to prove it. I spent several years then uh, climbing every weekend in the Sierras, sort of, and in between doing experiments. Just before I was finishing, I went to the movies. What was the movie that was playing? The Endless Summer. The Beach Boys with great big surfboards going around the world looking for the perfect wave. And I thought, wow, I'm a climber. I should look for the perfect mountain. So I spent 15 months climbing around the world. We did a bunch of first ascents, and uh, I was very lucky to climb in Iran and Afghanistan and Kashmir and Ethiopia, lots of places that unfortunately have not done well since. So I felt really lucky. And again, that empowered me that I could dream up something that <laughs> far-fetched. Was there kind of a moment where that mountaineering experience kind of influenced how you saw the scientific world? Well, when I was a postdoc at Stanford, I was trying to understand the structure of proteins and how they fold. And nobody at that point thought you could actually look at a half-folded protein and start actually physically measuring what it looks like. And so I went off to an expedition to Soviet Central Asia uh, to climb Peak Lenin, the highest peak. Uh, it's like 25,000 feet, and there was a terrible storm. A lot of people died. I just got down. I was in the storm near the summit and managed to get down, and I was sitting at the bottom of the glacier watching the ice dripping, and I realized what you should do is freeze the protein and then put it into a spectrometer where it was warm. And as it thawed, you could take pictures of the thawing protein 
and you could get evidence for what it looked like. And nobody had ever thought to do that before. And I came back and I did it and it worked. And that actually sort of started the field of protein folding, my professor. He later told me that the person who got a Nobel Prize for protein folding in NMR uh, came to see him and said there was one experiment that we wished he had first done. And that was my experiment that I thought of sitting there on the glacier watching the ice drip. Incredible. And with so many Nobel Prizes that should have gone to women um, that just went to, to men. That's probably another example. So how did you then transition to where you are now, which is full-time science advocate, policy advisor? Science is powerful, and our model of using really good science to change policy and to change how people purchase things does work amazingly well. It started in the 70s when, indeed, a friend of mine died climbing, who was an early environmentalist. I wanted to do something for the environment in his memory and went to see a guy named Bruce Ames who developed a bacterial test for which chemicals were likely to cause cancer. I said, what can I do for the environment? And he said, well, I'm worried about these flame retardants in kids' pajamas. They're 10% of the weight of the pajamas. I think they're coming out and getting in the children. I think they may be cancer-causing. My test will show if they're likely to be cancer-causing. Do you want to work on flame retardants? And that sounded really bizarre to me, but I was depressed, so I said, sure. The cancer-causing flame retardant in question is called TRIS. How did you go about making the connection between that and products. We found a little girl whose mom had bought her pajamas in the UK. And so we put her in the Tris pajamas and collected her urine. And the first day, her urine had Tris flame retardant breakdown products and were known cancer-causing chemicals. And every day she wore the pajamas, the level went up. She stopped wearing them, the level went down. So it was clear that the Tris chemicals were ending up in the child. In America, chemicals in products that go into our mouths, like foods, drugs, pesticides, are regulated. But the rest of chemicals pretty much are not regulated, like flame retardants. So that was alarming. Then we ran a, a screen to see if this chemical changed DNA. Was it a mutagen? Was it likely to cause cancer? And it was one of the strongest mutagens ever measured. A mutagen is a chemical that changes DNA, and that can likely start a cancer to start growing. So chemicals that cause mutations are likely to also cause cancer. You really don't want them inside your children. So we reported our result in a lead article in uh, Science, a very high-impact journal. And the subtitle of our article was The Main Flame Retardant in Children's uh, Pajamas it Seems to be Cancer-Causing and Should Not Be Used. And so that's a really strong statement. And then we did media. In those days, we were on all three TV morning shows, Good Morning America, The Today Show. And within a few days, every parent in America knew they wanted Tris out of their kids' pajamas. And three months later, Tris was removed from all the kids' pajamas in America. We thought the problem was solved. This was 1977. You jump ahead now to 2007. My daughter's starting college. I have not been doing much science for a very long time. I wanted to go back to doing something useful, and maybe I can get a job washing test tubes in somebody's lab. 
And then I discovered that Tris, the same Tris we'd gotten out of kids' pajamas, was back in the nation's furniture. And it was like 5 or 10% of the weight of the foam in most furniture, most baby products. And it was just as harmful, and nobody knew about it. I have to say, that's been 13 years. And every day of that 13 years, I've sort of felt like I was on Annapurna. <laughs> like there are exciting things happening, there are opportunities. Uh, because based on that, um, I, I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about the fact that Tris was back in furniture, connected with Russell Long, a, a local activist, who said, let's write a bill and we'll change that. Because actually it was a California law that was followed across all of the U.S. and Canada that was responsible for all the furniture and children's products in U.S. and Canada containing these harmful, and it turns out, not even useful flame retardants. So if these chemicals are not useful, why, why are they being used? They're primarily to make a profit for the people who produce them, and they're in all of us and all of our children, our pets, our wildlife. Somebody did a study of honey all the honey has a little bit of flame retardant. Well, that means all the bees have a little bit of flame retardant. And that's maybe not why they're having so many problems, but we know it's not helping their health. They impair neurological development. They impair reproduction. The, I guess the storm analogy with Annapurna would be the chemical industry spending upwards of $20 million to try and defeat you at every turn in Sacramento when you're pushing legislation to ban these flame retardants. Um, how are you ultimately successful? Well, actually, we weren't banning flame retardants. What you have to do is change the flammability standard, because if you ban one flame retardant, it's replaced with another one that's very similar. So we had to change the standard in Sacramento. And that was really hard, because the chemical industry, of course, claimed that fire safety would be impaired. But the fact is that you could stop the fire before it reaches the foam. That really helps more than just putting a lot of chemicals in the foam, which just makes the fire smokier and more toxic. The thing that really changed everything was going hiking with the then governor's senior advisor in this very place, <laughs> being able to educate him about the fact that the flame retardants were harming the health of everybody in our country and that the fire safety standard needed to be changed. And so with the help of Jerry Brown, it was changed. So um, the flame retardants in furniture and children's products problem has been solved, and it was based on good science, communicating the science. But just like Annapurna, it doesn't sound like your policy advocacy days are over because you were successful on flame retardants. No, and indeed the flame retardant industry is busy trying to bring them back to furniture. Unfortunately, they're unrelenting. I mean, when the law changed, they sued the state of California saying they couldn't change the law. They lost. And now they're doing all kinds of underhanded things trying to bring the flame retardants back. But what we're working on now is other chemicals. We're, the whole concept that we want to think about chemicals in families, because sadly, if you ban a chemical, you often get a chemical replacing it that's almost identical, and you can keep doing that forever. And the chemicals we're now working with, they're the worst of the worst. These are the stain and water repellent chemicals called PFAS, peron polyfluoroalkyl substances, a big mouthful, abbreviated PFAS. 
and they're forever chemicals. They never break down. They've contaminated the drinking water of tens of millions of Americans. Uh, there's huge liability now for, for having used them. And what we've learned is remediating them is expensive, if impossible. You know, once they're out in the world, all you can maybe do is give people clean drinking water, but you can't really clean them up. They're so expensive. And so the best thing is to stop their use in products. And we have contributed to um, the outdoor industry, which has used them a lot, is moving out of them. You can buy outdoor jackets without them. The fast food industry used them to coat uh, wrappers and pizza boxes, and they're moving away from them. The carpet industry has moved away. The major source of exposure for children was, was carpeting, and they've pretty much stopped using them. And uh, so the clothing industry, many big companies have stopped using all PFAS, and, and you want to stop using the whole class. We think it's really important to stop using all PFAS when they're not essential, when they're not necessary. And so we've been working with different industries, and, and industries are stopping. They understand it. Because that's about 7,000-plus yeah. different types of PFAS and PFOA in those classes, which is just stunning. I mean, you think, to your point, if you ban one or two, there's still 6,998 yeah. left. Yeah, and it turns out that the uh, chemical industry knew in the 60s about the harm of PFOA, but because it wasn't officially a hazardous substance, they didn't have to tell anyone. You know, things happened. It was really shocking. But they discovered that when um, mice were exposed, pregnant mice, uh, the babies would be born with an eye defect. And at the DuPont plant, a chunk of women had babies with the same eye defect. And DuPont did not report that. They just took them off the line for a while. And that was like in the 80s. And um, so they knew for 50 years about the harm before the chemicals were phased out. And then they replaced PFOA and PFAS, with, which are eight carbons, with very similar chemicals that were six carbons. And that's kind of where we are now, but a lot of manufacturers, retailers, companies are realizing that they don't want to use any members of this class, unless they're essential. Are you observing kind of corporate sensitivity to these issues in a way that you didn't see 10 years ago? Well, certain companies are very values-driven. Um, IKEA is our star example. They learned about PFAS in um, 2014, and by 2015, they had it out of all their products worldwide. Um, they had substitutes that were not PFAS. They used in raincoats, umbrellas, shower curtains, and they said uh, for tablecloths, we haven't found a substitute that provides oil resistance, so we'll just stop selling tablecloths. And IKEA stopped selling tablecloths worldwide. They still don't, you know. That's very values-driven. Unfortunately, many companies are more bottom-line-driven than values-driven. Your organization, um, the Green Science Policy Institute, is really a global hub for convening scientists and advocates around this particular issue. We've had uh, monthly calls with it's now 100 scientists all over the world who specialize in PFAS. We've been having monthly calls since 2013 and sharing all this news, um, science and policy from all over the world. So we took that and put it on this PFAS Central website. So if people put in PFAS Central, they can get all the latest news on PFAS. So we, we try to, again, to educate based on science. And 
I'm just astounded at how successful it has been, you know, with flame retardants, with PFAS, antimicrobials. So I, I, when we encourage more people, more scientists to do policy and more policy people and NGOs to, to be science-based. So that's kind of our, our place, and we'd like to see lots more people doing that. I mean, I'm not that surprised. Every single thing you've put your mind to in your life, you've been successful at, and now you're being successful at this. You've got an ability to seize the moment and understand how to bring different things together. What, what does the rest of your day look like? Well, I'm at home these days, um, so I'll go look at my email, which occupies me a lot. I, I would be happily not reading 100 emails if I got to do this every day with you, so thank you, Arlene. Thank you. I actually love my email. It's always very exciting and interesting. <laughs> a huge thank you to Arlene for talking with us today. Arlene's belief that we can do seemingly impossible things is the foundation of a life of adventure. As Arlene said, once you start to realize that you can dream up these things that seem impossible and then get other people who think it is possible and then make it happen, it's very empowering. I doubt I'll ever climb as high as Arlene, but I do strive to follow her wisdom. Walk every day in nature, realize that getting lost can teach us more than we think, don't reject crazy ideas out of hand. Bring people together, especially when they don't see eye to eye, and never stop pushing forward. During these very difficult times, these are ideals that we can all live by because, as Arlene has shown us, there really ain't no mountain high enough. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, executive producer David Kahn, and from me, Jerry Blumenfeld, I hope you stay safe and healthy during these very tough days. 